Welcome to the new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live. On WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Our concert began with a new work by the young American composer Derek Burmell. Derek is one of the orchestra's resident composers this year. Through a generous grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, we have residencies with a so-called mentor composer. This year it's Academy Award winner John Corleano and also a composer-educator partner, this year Derek Burmell. Derek will be working with the Troy School District as well as having a world premiere on our series in May and as well as having opened our season with this beautiful homage to Bella Bartok on our September concert. Derek is one of the most exciting and interesting young composers in America. He's in his early 40s and uh, lives and works in the New York City area and is really the epicenter of the young composer scene in America. He's an active clarinet performer as well as composer uh, and so tends to play a great number of works by other young composers and always has an incredible list that he emails me. Every year it changes from year to year. When I ask him to tell me who some of the most interesting young composers are in any given year, he'll send me a list of 20 or 30 young composers invariably different from the 20 or 30 I asked him the previous year because he just seems to always know who the most interesting and exciting young composers coming up are. As for himself, Derek grew up in the New York City area and uh, has traveled extensively through the world studying different kinds of music. In high school, he got very interested in in rap music and, and sort of urban Americana, but he also, through his clarinet playing, developed a great passionate interest in jazz and uh, is a huge f- fanatical fan of Theolonius Monk and other great jazz figures. And so as a young man, he uh, headed off to Ghana in Africa to study Ghanaian xylophone playing and building, spent four months living there. He's also traveled to Bulgaria to study uh, Bulgarian folk clarinet playing, has lived in Israel, and has traveled frequently to Brazil and Portugal to study folk music of those countries. And all of the music that he experiences and listens to and studies informs his own music. In this case, as Derek described it, it was a, a chance for him to write his New York City piece, being a native New Yorker, and didn't really want to write a piece about the scenery of New York or the nice uh, urban music of New York. He wanted to find a way to express something very poignant and interesting about New York. And so he remembered having read many years ago some very touching letters that Bella Bartok wrote back to his family, his sons and his close friends in Hungary during the Second World War. As you may remember, Bartok immigrated to New York during the war and lived for a while in Queens uh, and at different places around New York City. And like so many great European cultural figures during the war period, uh, displaced and coming to the New World, he really lived in in incredible obscurity and uh, had great financial challenges. And uh, during this war period, when there were so many immigrants and when the world was so focused on things other than the creation of art. So he had a very difficult time in New York. And yet at the same time, he, he loved being here and, and had very interesting and exciting experiences as well. Uh, in fact, he went up to Columbia University and transcribed Yugoslavian folk songs while he was living here because that 
that was something that had been a very big part of his life, collecting folk music and and, uh, understanding it, uh, and it gave him great comfort. Anyway, there was this body of letters that were very poignant and beautiful and filled with homesickness and interesting observations about New York. And so Derek really looked to those letters in crafting this piece, uh, which is an homage to, to Bartok in three movements. It's called A Shout, A Whisper, and A Trace. It was written for the American Composers Orchestra just about a, a year and a half ago and premiered by them. But I thought it was a very beautiful and, and touching piece to open our season, uh, especially on this concert, which happened to fall on on September 11th. So each movement of the piece uh, sort of expresses a different aspect of Bartok and his experience here. The first movement, I guess the shout movement, uh, is really kind of a, a, a takeoff on Eastern European Hungarian style folk music. And it has wonderful mixed meter where the meter keeps changing, the pulse keeps changing, and, and very gutsy sort of uh, folk sounding thematic material. It's, in fact, a very challenging and exciting movement to play. The second movement, A Whisper, the the second movement of the piece, is really inspired by uh, a lot of Bartok's own slow movements in many of his pieces in the Concerto for Orchestra and his last orchestral work, the Third Piano Concerto. Uh, When Bartok wrote slow movements, he often called them night music. They have a wonderful nocturnal sense, and you can almost hear the sounds of insects buzzing and of, of, of night sounds. And so Derek set out to write a sort of night music movement with a very interesting, very Hungarian-sounding violin cadenza at the end of the movement, played by our brilliant concertmaster, Jill Levy. And finally, A Trace, the last movement, is really about sort of the ghosts of New York, the fact that when one walks down the street or when Derek walks down the street, he has the sense that there are great figures like Bartok and so many different figures who came to New York as immigrants and who somehow had to find their way in the city. And so it's, it's very evocative and introspective ultimately very beautiful music about the ghosts of New York. So here now, a performance of Derek Burmell's work, A Shout, A Whisper, and A Trace. The work is from 2009, and it's performed by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was Derek Burmell's homage to Bella Bartok at the end of his life, A Shout, A Whisper, and A Trace. It was performed by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Next on the program, the Albany Symphony and I were very proud to welcome back to the Troy Music Hall uh, one of our favorite guest artists, Yefim Bronfman, the monumental Russian-born, Israeli-trained pianist who's been a frequent visitor to our region, both uh, on our series at the Albany Symphony and at the Union College, chamber music series and various other series. It happens that FEMA, is a, FEMA as he's known, uh, FEMA, I guess, a diminutive for Yefim, uh, FEMA is a great fan of our region and certainly of the Troy Music Hall. He loves to play there, and I, I hope also of our orchestra. Uh, and so he chose as the piece he wanted to play with us on this concert uh, one of the most challenging, if not the most challenging, piano concerto in the entire repertoire. You may, if you have saw the movie Shine, be under the impression that the Rachmaninoff third piano concerto is in fact the most difficult concerto. But I think from a pure technical point of view, this work, the Prokofiev Piano Concerto Number no. 2, is really the most daunting work in the entire repertoire from a purely technical point of view. The work is in four movements, a little bit unconventional for a concerto in that most concerti tend to be in three movements. The first movement is a, a very unusual structure. The orchestra begins and almost immediately the piano comes in and states the first theme. What's most remarkable about the first movement of this piece is that 
plunk in the middle where the development section, the middle section of the movement should be, there begins an absolutely unbelievable, probably five or six minute long solo piano section. The orchestra gets silent. I've always referred to it as a cadenza, but in fact, uh, in the pre-concert talk, Derek Rameau pointed out to me that it's in fact not a a cadenza per se. A cadenza is a a moment at the very end of the movement where we reach a a chord, and just before the final resolution, uh, the, the pianist or the soloist takes off and does kind of an expanded cadence, does an expanded show-off moment, a cadenza coming from the word cadence. In fact, this isn't a cadence at all. It's really two-thirds of the structure of the piece. It's the entire middle section, the entire development section, and most of the recapitulation when all the initial material comes back. All solo piano and building to the most incredible climactic piano playing experienced anywhere. So that's the exciting aspect of the first movement. The second movement is an absolute breathtakingly brisk and brief little scherzo movement. Uh, It lasts about four minutes, and it's what's called a moto perpetuo, a perpetual motion piece. And the the, the pulse and the rhythm starts and the texture starts and really doesn't change for four minutes. It's a a very fleet and exciting kind of piece. The third movement, called intermezzo, I would really retitle more of a a grotesquerie. It's really an unbelievable kind of uh, heavy pompous, thrilling, early modern Prokofiev movement. And the finale is, frankly, my favorite movement in that it starts very spiky and and typical Prokofiev music, but in the middle he introduces this incredibly beautiful and poignant it sounds like a folk song, but in fact it turns out to be an original folk song that Prokofiev wrote specifically for the piece. Very touching and beautiful. It's been alluded to as kind of a Mazorkskian sort of theme, and that builds and sort of contrasts with the spikier music. Prokofiev wrote this piece when he was a very young man. He was still a student at the St. Petersburg Conservatory when he wrote the piece, uh, 1912-1913. He went to Paris after that, and, uh, and it was considered quite a, it was quite a scandal when the piece was premiered and considered extremely modern. And Prokofiev played the part, this daunting piano part, and uh, it was quite a quite a, a cause celeb. He went off to Paris, and then during the revolution, the materials to the piece were lost. So ten years later, in 1923, he reconstructed it from memory, and it's that version that we know today. What you're about to hear is not our performance. It's a commercial recording which Bronfman made with Zubin Mehta and the Israel Philharmonic. I was a little surprised, but when we were just about to get to the concert, uh, FEMA, as he's known, said, um, oh, no, I said in my contract, uh, no no recording. And I said, what do you mean? We just put it on the radio. We'd love to have our local listeners listen to it. He said, he said no, no, I don't like to have my performances recorded very often, especially of this piece. It's so stressful for me. And he'd been off for the summer, not performing for three months, and he's just come back to it. And so it turns out that, in fact, that had been the case, that uh, we had agreed that if he did not want to, we would not we would not broadcast uh, the piece. Uh, and it turns out in discussion that he, he frequently does this. He's, he's a, interestingly very insecure about his performances very frequently. And yet when he performs, and I've worked with him a number of times, it's, it's at the highest level, international level of anyone. But he, he's a perfectionist. And so he preferred not to have uh, it re- recorded and, and broadcast. And I only tell you, the listeners, that because it's just one more reason why it's so important to subscribe to the Albany Symphony. Because the live experience of hearing Yefim Bronfman pound away at this monumental thing is something that just simply can't be replicated anywhere, anyhow. But we'll do our best by uh, by broadcasting this very beautiful recording uh, by Bronfman playing Prokofiev's Piano Concerto Number no. 2. The conductor is Zubin Mehta, and the orchestra is the Israel Philharmonic. 
This is the Conductor's Notes Podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes Podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. For the second half of this program, which occurred on September 11th, I wanted to find a, a major work that in no way really referenced the great tragic events of September 11th, nine years ago, but that could uh, stand on its own on a, a concert in which we sort of quietly marked that anniversary. And so I thought of one of my absolute favorite composers, Johannes Brahms, and of my absolute favorite piece by Brahms, the Symphony Number no. 3, which, as I'm sure you know, is pure music. It, it doesn't have a, a story that goes along with it or a particularly programmatic element. Brahms's music seldom does. It's in the grand tradition of Beethoven symphonies and Mozart and Haydn and Bach before, and that it's pure abstract music of the highest level that is really about itself. And yet at the same time, this is a very unusual symphony in that unlike so many of the other greatest symphonies of music history, is a very lyrical, elegiac, introspective piece, which interestingly ends quietly. Of course, you know, fourth movements of symphonies tend to be very exciting and thrilling, and in the Beethovenian model end with huge, crashing, many minutes long, cadential passages that uh, hopefully, at least in the case of works like the Seventh Symphony of Beethoven, or the Fifth, or the Ninth, or the Third, uh, bring the audience screaming to its feet. In the case of this symphony, Brahms really was trying for something very different, a much more introspective work, and also a work that, unlike most of the other symphonies I can think of, certainly of this period, really strives to do something architecturally, where the individual movements are in many ways linked. And, and certainly in each movement, Brahms is creating an architectural, an architectural structure. But at the same time, I believe in this piece, he's building like a giant structure in which, interestingly, at the very end of the, of the piece, of the last movement, the motto, the theme of the first movement, bum, 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 ba, ba, dum, returns very quietly in the strings, in essence creating a giant arch form over the four movements. The piece is, of course, in four movements. It begins with that great theme that's often called a Schumann theme because it, it harkens back to Schumann's Rhenish symphony. The contour of the beginning of it is so referential to Schumann, it's often referred to as the Schumann theme. And Brahms was, of course, a, a, a disciple of Schumann as a young man, and Schumann was his primary mentor for a while. It's a big, exciting, dramatic first movement uh, with incredibly complicated and interesting harmonic and also metrical aspects to it. In fact, for much of the movement, the downbeat gets kind of moved over one beat early. So it sounds like there's a downbeat, but it always kind of occurs on the sixth beat of this six-four movement. The, the, the work is in six. One, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, one. This very interesting metric and ambiguity between whether it's one, two, three, four, five, six, or one, two, three, four, five, six, and also this idea of displacing the downbeat. Very exciting and challenging first movement. Second and third movement, in great contrast, both very introspective and beautiful, a, a very delicate andante in the second movement, which begins with the clarinets and the bassoons, clarinet being one of Brahms's favorite instruments and an instrument for which he wrote more beautifully than perhaps any other composer ever, except maybe Mozart. Uh, third movement, a very famous uh, movement. If you know Brahms's intermezzi, his later piano pieces, Opus 118 and such, this piece 
even though it's orchestral, looks forward to those pieces. Uh, it's that beautiful lullaby, in essence. So in essence, Brahms is writing a sort of orchestral song without words for the symphony, an unusual idea. And then finally, this fourth movement, uh, as I mentioned, begins kind of quickly and excitedly as, as finales do, and yet through the working out of the movement, there's this very beautiful and mysterious chorale that gets going, which actually had been introduced in the second movement, uh, although it's a little hard to hear the bridge between them. And and this chorale uh, sort of reappears at three very critical points of the movement and ultimately leads the movement to this very introspective and reflective finale in which at the last moment, the opening theme of the first movement is, is recapitulated. Very beautiful piece. And one of the things I love about this symphony and Brahms's symphonies in general is that I think Brahms is probably, at least in the world of orchestral music, the composer who, for whom there is the widest possible interpretive range. If you go get five recordings by five different conductors from different periods, you'll hear unbelievable variances of, of rhythm and structure and some conductors, Furt Wangler and Clements Krauss, chief among them, took a very flexible, almost improvisatory approach to this music, whereas other conductors, like the conductor who first conducted this piece, Hans Richter, or conductors like Toscanini and Roger Norrington, the new early music conductors, tend to take a much more rigid, structural approach to the piece, and everyone else is somewhere in between. There's also an unbelievable variety of tempo, of speed in this piece. Some conductors take it extraordinarily, excruciatingly slowly. Some take it rather briskly. I think I'm somewhere in the middle, but I must say that I tend usually in my Brahms interpretation to go more toward the structuralists who like to keep the bones very audible. In this piece, perhaps because it's such a an introspective and such an expressive piece, I tend to go more in the Furtwanglerian direction. And while I, my tempi are not nearly as extreme as his, I love to explore the flexibility in the music, something that I think Brahms, in his own performances, enjoyed doing. So here it is now, the final work on our program, the Third Symphony by Johannes Brahms, the F Major Symphony, Opus 90, written when Brahms was 50 years old. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. The new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live on WMHT-FM, your classical companion.